Well, have you ever been in a situation that you knew something was wrong, but you couldn't find the source? Okay. Uh, if you don't know who I am, I'm Mitch Hines, uh, pastor of uh, worship and families here at Grace. And I have the opportunity to speak today. As you know, usually John Woodrum is here, but he's off on vacation with his family. So we're certainly praying for a restful and incredible time for them. But I have a story to tell you, and you may have heard this before. Um, if you know me, you may have heard this, but I think it pertains to the passage today, so I'll tell it very quickly. Uh, a few weeks ago, my wife, Megan, uh, she told me when I got home from lunch that there is this weird smell coming from the bathroom. And I need you to figure it out. I need you to go, and that's, that's not our sink, so it didn't look like that. But just for reference sake, you can see it. But there's this smell, and I just need you to take care of it. you got to find it. Okay, so me being the uh, man that I am, a problem-solving man, I went into the bathroom, and there's two sinks in there. And using my keen observation skills and my sniffer, uh, I went sniffing around. I went to the toilet, went to the tub, went to the sinks. And when I got to that second sink farther back, it smelled nasty. It was gross. And I stuck my nose down to the, the right there at the bottom, and it was overwhelmingly gross. So I thought, here's the smell. Here's where it's coming. So I thought, well, if I run water and it clogs up, I just need to flush that down the drain. Smell's gone. So I ran water for a little bit. Nothing. Water just went right down, kept going down, so it's clear. So I did a quick Google search, and Google told me that if you use baking soda and vinegar, it can eliminate some smells. So I took some rags, and I'm cleaning out the, the sink. Because sinks are gross, right? They just get gross so fast. So I'm cleaning that out. I'm running this paste down and kind of soaking it. And after I do that a couple times, I smell, and the smell's still there. So another Google search said there is a, what's called a P-trap under there. If you're a plumber, you know this little J thing there is supposed to hold water. And if that gets empty somehow, then the sewage smell comes up through there, and you really can't get rid of it until you get water back in there. So I thought, well, time to take things apart. So I unscrewed that thing there, and as I did so, some water spilled out, and I thought, well, it must not be empty. And I got it all the way off and, and drained it, and I took it out of the bathroom. By this time... I'm, my eyes are watering. It's so gross in there. And so I take it out and just smell the pipe itself. Nothing. I mean, it smells good, actually. Baking soda vinegar, it smelled really good. So I went back in the room, and it's, over, it's gross. I'm telling you, this smelled like onions, garlic, and vomit, all in the same. It was, it was, it was so bad. I'm telling you, it's so bad. And Megan can tell you. And so I thought, all right, I need to enlist some help. I need some friends to help me investigate and see what's going on. And so I had some friends come, and they thought the only thing that it could be, well, one of two things. Either the overflow drain got something clogged in there, and when you have six children, that's absolutely possible. Sorry, guys. Or maybe something died in your wall right there, and it's, it's coming from that. I don't, we don't know. So I thought, I'm going to soak this thing in bleach. So I duct taped the bottom put a bowl underneath because I know it's going to leak. That doesn't hold water. But I bleached it, bleached through the overflow, and left. I'm like, I have to get out of here. So we left for a little bit. Coming back, went in the room, and it still smelled so bad. It smelled so bad. And just before, I thought, well, I'm going to have to bust open this wall or break the, it's, it's one big countertop. I was just going to bust that thing up. We're getting a new thing. Sorry, honey. <laughs> we're going to spend the money. We're just going to bust this up. But just before I do, I look behind the soap dispenser, and there's a rag sitting there. And I said before, we use rags to clean it out, but this rag was from a garlic spill a couple days ago that we cleaned out of the fridge. And I, I grabbed it, pulled it up to my face. Oh, man, 
I threw that away, okay? I threw it away. I didn't put it in the washer, thank goodness. But my point, which there are many points, the first thing is look before you take apart. Look before you bust up the counter. But the point that I want to make today is you better know the source of the problem before you try to take care of any external things. And we've been going through the book of Philippians, and I think a lot of times it, the book is, called, is about joy, right? We call this series, No Matter What, on purpose, No Matter What, Joy in Every Circumstance. And we do all these things. We fix the sink. We try to take apart pipes. We do all these things, but we never address the true source of joy in our lives, which is Jesus. So I want you to remember that today as we go. Let me go ahead and pray, and we'll get into the text today. Father, I'm, I'm so thankful to be able to have the opportunity to speak this morning, and I pray that uh, my words are, are from your words and your truth and how you've been working in my life um, this week and, and, and just all throughout my entire life. And I'm thankful that we have this opportunity to learn and hear from you, from your truth, to find our true source of joy in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, quick context for where we're at. We're in Philippians chapter 2 today, and uh, Paul has been writing this letter to the Philippians, the Philippian church, uh, the the church at Philippi. Uh, He's thanking them for their partnership in the gospel, uh, explaining to them that even though he is in prison, the gospel is still being advanced, and he has joy. Uh, last week, uh, Paul gave the, uh, the Philippians their first to-do, really, as he's gone through this book, uh, telling them to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you are a uh, kid in here particularly, but that is the memory verse for today if you want to get a prize out of the prize box. We have created these uh, resources for you as families. If you have these Philippians packets, I encourage you, even if you haven't, just take them today and begin the process. It's been such an encouragement to be able to be centered as a family on one thing. Uh, Memory verses for each week. There's help in there too in the app and resources. It's been an incredible resource. So I encourage you, pick that up. Um, Parents, if you want to say the memory verse too, you go ahead. I'm I'm sure there's enough prizes back there. So adults, you can do that. Um, But in this next section that I have in chapter 2, Paul gives more practical ways that we can live this way, letting our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And typically here at Grace, we also end our messages with head, heart, and hands. Uh, John started this a while ago, and I think it's really uh, helpful for us to be able to have our minds engaged with the text, our uh, hearts to reflect, and then our hands to actually practically live this out. When I first got my section, I was worried because this is a section John would have split into at least three or four, maybe five uh, messages, right? He, He likes to go very methodical and very slow, which is very, very good. I'm not ragging on him, by the way. But as I got it, we're, we're going through this Philippian study. We have to keep moving along. And so I was worried. And my wife uh, gave me an idea. She said, well, could you do head, heart, hands in those three sections? Because for me, it's about three sections. And as I studied and continued to read, it actually works perfectly that way. And so instead of ending our time together with head, heart, hands, we're going to begin each section with that. And if you're using your notes or, or the church app, you can follow along and write these things down. But for the head today, okay, it is be of one mind. Uh, Be of one mind. And I'm going to be reading, uh, I'm actually using the NIV version. Uh, I know John said it's okay to be wrong. And, uh, but this is the Bible that I use and study from. I have my notes in here, so it it was easier for me just to continue reading in that way. But the NIV version, Paul uh, says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, If any common sharing in the Spirit, 
If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. The idea of being one mind is all throughout Scripture, particularly in Paul's letters. He talks about that a lot, but this is just the idea of being unified, being united as one body, as one church of one people. Uh, he says in Romans 15, 5 through 6, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. 2 Corinthians 13.11, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And Jesus even prayed for his believers in this way uh, in, in John 17. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that's the disciples, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Now, if there's one thing that we can say about this world, our culture particularly, is that we are not of one mind, right? Watch the news, scroll social media. What's always pointed out, what's always seen, is the things that make us different, the things that we don't agree with, the things that we want to make, you know, blast over here because I don't agree with that, and I, I'm different here, and, well, I think it should be this way, right? Our opinions and our differences are the things that are pointed out, and it's even with believers in the church, right? We disagree with one another, and I don't believe this, and I don't, I don't think this way, and, oh, we need to do this, right? We, we disagree, and we, that's what we focus on so much. And as I read through this passage, it says being one in spirit, one in mind, how do we reconcile that? As believers, how do we justify allowing ourselves to get to a place of such disunity, division, and disharmony? And what do we do then with this? And I think to make things simple as we move along here is that it starts at home. It starts at home. And here's why. At Grace, our mission that we have, our vision is, is to know and follow Jesus, help each other know and follow Jesus in our home, city, and world, right? And we Put it that way on purpose, right? Home first, city, then world. Because while the world is, is very divided, you can't change the world really without changing your first community, your city. And you can't really change your city or your community without starting first in your home, right? What example are we setting for our community? In our marriages and with our kids, are we unified, striving together for the work of the gospel? Or are we fighting about minor issues, personal preferences, or selfish desires? What if instead our marriages were pictures of the unity that Jesus prayed for? What if our families focused on what God wanted us to do instead of our selfish desires? This past week, the Philippian study activity, if you're following along again, was to create a family motto. This is a mission statement that you as a family could rally around and begin to make important decisions based on it. For my family, this is a great opportunity to revisit our statement, the one that we created a, a few years back, to remind each other why we created in the first place and remember what it means. If you didn't get a chance to do it, I encourage you to revisit that activity. There's a space in the app 
to write down some ideas, even now if you want, writing some ideas of something that your family could unite and center on. And, and I know I've shared this before, but I think every time I've gotten the chance to speak, but we as a family use our last name as an acrostic for our family mission. Again, it's something that we can unite and rally together on. And if you want to steal some of ours or tweak some of ours for your family, you're welcome to. But I just want to share. I thought it'd be helpful to write these things down. Our letter H is for hearts and home open. Okay, and that means just having our hearts open towards one another, but also to outsiders and our home open to bring others in and have meals and have game nights together, right? We have, and it's great for discipline too. I was thinking about this as I was studying. The, our mission statement is great for discipline. When the kids are arguing with each other, the first thing I can say is, well, do you have your heart open towards your sibling? It's just a great thing to, to put our minds back to why we are as a family. Um, Heinz, I is inward and outward. Okay, we take care of our inward self, spiritually and physically, at the same time reaching outwardly. Too often, sometimes we focus too much on focusing inward, and we never reach out. But if we, on the flip side, focus just outwardly, we're going to burn out very quickly. And so we do both of those at the same time. N is for needy people. We need Jesus, and we follow him. Okay, and that's the gospel. We, need, we know we are broken. We know we are flawed. And so moment by moment, we need to be reminded of that. E is encourage and celebrate others. Another good one for discipline, right? Encourage others, celebrate others, especially if you play games with your family and there's only one winner, right? Usually there's only one winner and so everybody else is mad, but we can say, no, no, we encourage and we celebrate someone else's win and the one who wins encourages them. Hey, you'll do better next time, maybe, right? And then letter S is shine light in dark places. Wherever we go, whether we go to the ball fields, the store, anywhere that we go, shine light in dark places, shine the light of Christ. And so hopefully that may be a little bit helpful for you to begin, again, just unifying on a mission for your family. But what about our church? As you know, Paul's writing to a body of believers, the church. So how do we obtain unity within the body? Um, John Piper, in his Sunday evening message on 1 Corinthians, gave five main points on this. Uh, number one, we should aim at full doctrinal unity, the truths of Scripture, not by coercion or manipulation, but by reasonable explanation and defense of biblical ideas, and then giving them time to bring their thoughts in line with the truth. And I think time is a big factor. Sometimes we just want people to know right now. But we're all in a different process of sanctification. And so as we seek unity... We allow for time. And, and in Philippians 3, we're going to see that. That Paul says, if you don't think this way, we pray that God will align your thoughts with what he says. Number two is we should aim at heart unity, interweaving our lives and hearts so that we feel with each other and care for each other. And here at Grace, that's K-groups, right? We live life on life, life shared with one another, and share that love and care and support with each other. Number three is that we should expect disunity, in the visible church while there are non-genuine professors of faith in the gathering. And this is something we don't sweep under the rug, but rather correct with gentleness in the hope that they might repent. And we know this to be true. We know there's probably somebody here this morning that does not believe or trust in Jesus Christ. But there may be somebody in here that says they do, but lives in a way that's complete opposite. We know that to be true, and we can expect disunity from that. That's li not living life the same way is going to cause division, going to cause strife. And we try to correct with gentleness and love, and again, time. It takes time. Number four is there will be disunity where there is pride. And this is something that we cannot let stay. Pride, this is something we need to fight and contend with within the church. 
But then there's a fifth one in matters of disunity on secondary or minor issues. These are things we can live with. If you've been to Intro to Grace or the membership class, we talk a lot about the bullseye issues, right? Namely the gospel. But there's some other bullseye issues that if you do not believe these things, we can't unite because we believe completely different things. But there are also some secondary issues and minor issues. You know, when is Jesus coming back and the tribulation and those, those things we can disagree on because they don't matter for the life and death and resurrection of the gospel. So we can unite on the major things, and we can disagree on the outside things. And if you want to know more, I'm sure there's going to be an Intro to Grace or a membership class coming up soon that you can attend and see and hear there. But ultimately, being of one mind starts with you. That unity starts with you, your home, and your family, and then choosing to unite with other believers in the gospel. And uh, I want to make a quick note that on August 7th, we have regroup happening. This is, again, K-groups is where that true life-on-life shared uh, life happens. Now, it can happen Sunday mornings, and after, after the message, we greet one another, encourage one another. But that, this really, K-groups are the, really the place to love and serve and really live, again, life together. Uh, come to regroup, even if you're uh, already in a K-group, even if you're already committed. Um, and feel free to, this is controversial, change groups sometimes. Okay? And not because you dislike your group or because you're, you're sick and tired of it, but really to get to know more people in the body. We building more relationships build us closer together as a church. And so the church we used to come from actually changed groups every year. You had to. It was mandatory. We won't do that here, but it's an encouragement to come. And come to regroup even, again, if you're committed to a group because others may see that, hey, they're in that group. I didn't know that. If they're not committed to a key group already, and begin to join and make that commitment. So head, again, be of one mind. And to do that, to be of one mind is to humble yourself. Our hard application is humble yourself. And Paul continues in verse 3, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the, each of you to the interests of others. And your relationships have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I, uh, before moving here, had been in uh, an internship at a church in Iowa. I don't know if you didn't know, I'm from Iowa. Go Hawkeyes. And um, this church, I interned for a year. And then after the year was over, they decided to go in a different direction and ask somebody else to lead worship. And for me, I was hoping and expecting to continue, and so this was very hurtful for me. And during the, the time after, I, I felt it necessary to stay at the church. They had great teaching. We loved the people there. It was great friends, and so we didn't want to leave the church just because of that. But each Sunday, and ever, even when I was in the band, I was very hurtful, but not really outwardly. I just inwardly had this pride about me. I, I wouldn't do that way. I wouldn't sing that song. I wouldn't have said that. And I was very hard-hearted and disunified toward this individual. And I share that to say this humble yourself is I I had to really humble myself um, just before moving here. Actually, I knew that I was going to move here and I, I knew God said, you have to make this right before you leave and lead a church in worship. And so I called this individual and I apologized. I I humbled myself and I said, I I know that you probably don't even know this, but I've been holding anger against you since you took over. And he didn't know. He he had no no idea um, 
I had even quit the band after a few months too. I just could, I couldn't handle it. But I just, I just, I said, I'm, I'm sorry for causing disunity, um, just even within us, but even just in my manner in worship for the church. I, I apologize for causing this disunity. We had a great conversation. It was a great moment of healing. But I share that not to, to puff myself up because that's my tendency and I still have moments of pride. But to share that it takes humbling yourself. That was not an easy phone call to make. And how many times I probably got the phone and was like, nah, not now. It's not an easy thing to do, but it takes humbling yourself. And, and when we read this too, so right, it says, not looking to your own interests, but the interests of others, we typically gloss over this section because we think, yeah, it sounds nice, but it's kind of a pipe dream. I might, you know, look to the interests of others, but at some point I'll fail because I know I'm selfish. And certainly everybody else is going to fail me. So that's where it doesn't work. This whole idea breaks down and we just can't do it. And so we just move along. We read on and we say, this isn't a command for me. But the real problem with this is we're thinking of ourselves too much. The truly gospel humble person doesn't have to think of themselves. And this goes back to the root cause, right? The, the smelly rag, we need to get to the root cause, right? We think, if I can take care of my needs, my desires, my wants, then I'll truly be happy. And then as Christians, we tack on, once I'm happy, then I can help others. Then I can reach out. Once I'm taking care of myself, then I can go and love someone else and serve someone else. But the problem is, we can never solve that first problem by ourselves, this is like cleaning the sink and changing the pipes and switching out the faucet. It never ends. We never find the source. We need more money. We need more food. We need more space. We need more stuff. We need less stuff. We need different stuff. I'm tired. I'm bored. I need a change of scenery. I need love. We get so focused on I that we have zero room for anyone or anything else. See, we all have an I problem. Letter I, not I. We all have an I problem. And I'm not telling you this again because I don't. I have an I problem too. I want to be entertained. I want to be the funny guy in the room, make sure people are laughing. I like being the music man. John called me last week. I don't want to be inconvenienced. I want to be in control. It's got to be my way. I want to be comfortable. So what's the solution, right? Because I know you, all of you feel me. You're like, okay, yeah, I'm there. And the solution is we say this all the time, and it sounds preachy. Preach the gospel to yourself. And now to make it not so preachy, okay, what does preach mean? It simply means to tell. Like right now, I'm the preacher. I'm telling you things, right? So tell, say to yourself the gospel. That's it. Simply say to yourself the gospel. Well, what's the gospel? You say, well, verses 6 through 11 in this passage of Scripture has a beautiful description of the gospel. Now, some even say that this could have been an early song or hymn that they might have sung, but it says this, Jesus, who being the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's, that's the gospel. Jesus came as a baby. He humbled himself, became in human likeness. So fully God, fully man. He came as a baby, was born. He lived a perfect life, obediently, lived perfectly. It says even obedient to death on a cross, right? That's obedience, full obedience. And why death? Scripture says that for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and the punishment for sin is death. We deserve death, yet Jesus lived perfectly, and died perfectly for us in our place that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And then he didn't stay dead, right? That, that, that verse here, therefore God exalted him to the high, highest place. Jesus was raised from the dead bodily, came back to life, forever defeating death, sin, and the grave. And he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's the gospel That's what we need to be reminded of day in and day out every single day. And if that doesn't get you excited, there's something wrong, right? That's something, Jesus died for me. Jesus did that for you and for me. And that should cause us to well up with excitement, humbleness, which is the whole point of this passage. And also just awe and reverence for what God would do for someone as lowly as me. And so how, how does this help though, right? So you say, okay, well, I remember the gospel. Okay, thanks. Move on, right? How does this help? Because it's where we place our identity. Who we are and what we do in Christ is where we place our identity in the gospel. Because then we don't need to validate ourselves. Nor do we need others to validate us. Because Jesus has already validated us. He says we are his We are children of God. We have a place in the kingdom. We are known and loved by the Father. We are forgiven. And in that, we can be humble because we don't need to prove ourselves. We don't need others to to prove us or give us accolades. We are already validated, which then frees us to look to the interests of others instead of ourselves, to have the same mindset as Christ and humble ourselves. We no longer need external things because Jesus has already given us everything we need. And we can truly look to the interests of others instead of ourselves. We can be truly satisfied in that by constantly saying it over and over again to ourselves, reminding us of that gospel. Reminding us that we are needy. But I'm not telling you to do another thing, right? We can take that and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to set an alarm on my phone and every hour I'm going to tell myself the gospel, right? It's not a to-do checklist because God doesn't leave us alone in this. It's not something you need to do in your own strength. Continuing on in verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's that work. And then he says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It is God who works in you. Yes, you do work. You do strive. You do contend. You fight. But it's Christ's power that works in you. The very same power that rose Jesus from the dead. That's pretty incredible power to be able to raise someone from the dead. And that same power is at work within you and me. If you've trusted in the gospel, if you've trusted in Jesus, that Holy Spirit is within you. And you can access it. 
Too often we just neglect it and we don't, well, that's, you know, it's hard, right? Yes, it's hard, but there is power in there and God helps you in that. He strengthens you in that. So be of one mind by humbling yourself. And how do you do that? It's kind of what we've been talking about. My last point, heart application, hands application, is to hold on to Jesus. Paul continues in verse 14. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. That's another good verse for home discipline, right? And try not grumbling about their grumbling, complaining, right? I complain sometimes when my kids complain. Why are you complaining? It's a big, vicious cycle. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Hold firmly to the word of life. That word of life is Jesus. A few weeks ago, I was studying through the book of Joel. um, And in it, the prophet tells of a time when the Israelites would have the blessings that God gave them taken away because they forgot God and walked in disobedience. And this was that cause and effect, right? So if you obey God and follow his commands and you receive blessing, and if you disobey and, and don't and follow his commands and you forget God, then you get discipline, right? Blessings and curses. That's Deuteronomy 28. You see a whole list of things of blessings and then a whole list of things of curses. And this is true. Obviously, Scripture says so. And parents, we teach this to our kids, right? If you do this, this, and this, then you can get this. But if you don't do this or if you act this way, then you're going to get this, this, and this, these consequences, right? But as I studied, something stood out to me. And it's Joel chapter 2, verses 26 to 27. It says, you will have plenty to eat until you are full. And then you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who worked wonders for you. In 27, it says, then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. You see, they were given blessings, food, full, fullness, satisfaction, so that they would praise God. No matter the, the, what happened before, they were given those things so that they praise God. And so I thought, well, why would they get discipline? Besides the, the cause, right? Besides the cause, what's the discipline then for? And it's the very same thing. God gives discipline so that we seek him. And if you're following me here, this is what happened to Job, right? Job actually didn't do anything wrong. He didn't disobey, and his things were taken away. God allowed those things to be taken away, his his kids, his, his wealth, all those things. And he said, my heart will choose to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Though God may take my life, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. And so I thought, what if we've been thinking about this whole blessings and curses in, in the wrong way? right? Whatever the cause, whatever comes behind, what do we do in response to that, right? Whenever we see blessing, does it drive us to praise and thank God and hold on to Jesus? And then at the same time, when we receive discipline or hard times, do we run to God and seek him, thank him, and hold on to Jesus, right? What if we thought of those things in a so that way, no matter what it is, good or bad, we get those things so that we hold on to Jesus, all situations, good or bad, are so they hold on to Jesus. So, Paul then continues. He says, 
And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. It's because they were holding on to Jesus. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, death, if I'm poured out, died, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice. Even if Paul is killed, he says, be glad, rejoice. And I thought, how can we rejoice when, when so many things are going wrong in the world, in our lives or in our relationships, our families, our finances, inside of our minds? For generations, bad things have happened, are happening, and will happen in the future. And I think in an effort to rejoice, to be happy, or forget our troubles, we try all sorts of things. Maybe I need a new house, or a new car, or a change of scenery, or maybe if I just leave my spouse, things will get better. Or if I could just get that promotion or that new job, I'll be satisfied. Or I just need out of the house. I need away from my parents. I need to get to college, right? College kids, that's coming up very soon. Maybe I, I just need to get this degree and, or I need uh, this uh, to get into this college, right? Maybe if your application doesn't come back yet. I just, I need, I need, I need, right? And we try these things. Ask yourself, where do you go when things get hard? What things do you run to when you get stressed or burnt out or tired or even just bored? Is it alcohol or lust, sports, video games, social media, the news, fishing or hunting? Maybe it's YouTube or food or the beach, friends, shopping, Entertainment, the list could go on and on and on. And there's, there's space, if you're, if you're using the app and the notes, write down some of those things that you run to that you know, yeah, I, I do that when things get hard. Or when I'm bored, I, I just immediately go here. What are the things you run to in times of injuries? I hurt my shoulder a few weeks back. I, I rotator cuff tendonitis. And do I see this as something that pushes me to hold on to the word of life? Or do I whine and complain and, well, I'll just deal with it. Okay, I'm going to go along my way. In times of distress, a smelly rag, can't find the source of that smell. Did I allow that to be an opportunity to rejoice? Or did I just complain because I couldn't figure it out? In loss, a few years ago I lost my sister. She had a genetic disorder that eventually took her life. Did I take that as a moment to thank God for her life and the opportunity we had? Or did I get bitter and mad that she had to deal with that in the first place? See, all these, all these things that we run to, that we do, it's like cleaning the sink, changing the pipes, and destroying the counter. All the while, the, the source is literally, it's right in front of your nose. That source for joy is right there. And we so often just neglect it, trying to find other things. So be of one mind, humble yourself, and hold on to Jesus. And as we close this morning, I'd like to just move right into a time of communion. This is a moment in which God has invited you, invited all who trust in Jesus to participate in. And if you haven't received the elements, you can go ahead and raise your hand. We've got some people that, that will walk around. But th th hear this. This is a moment that God has invited you to. It's not we provided this space or we're, we're doing this. This is a moment that God invites all who have trusted in Jesus to participate in. And so 
If you have not placed your faith in Jesus, if you haven't, don't, don't raise your hand. Don't, don't take the bread and juice, but take this moment. Take this moment and consider God's invitation to the gospel that we talked about, that we sang about all morning. It's just been singing about the gospel. To confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It's that simple. Confess with your mouth, Jesus, you are Lord. And believe in your heart that God truly raised him from the dead, forgiving you and cleansing you of all of your sin. And if you do that today, if today is that day that you first believed, then God invites you to take communion and remember his sacrifice for you and your place. And if you are a believer, I encourage you to take the next few moments to pray with your family. If you're here with your family and your kids, and you have kids that are taking communion, this is not a time to be quiet. Okay, this is a time to talk with your kids. Ask them why you take communion or why, what's one thing they can maybe confess to God. This is a time of confession. Or even ask them, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus have to die? And this isn't an interrogation. If they have the wrong answer, then, oh, you don't get to take it today. This is a chance, that Jesus said, to remember. And sometimes we need to remind each other. So if your, your child that's taking communion is like, well, I, I can't quite remember. This is your opportunity. Tell them. Teach them, here's why we take communion, and here's what Jesus did for you and for me. So as I go and sit with my family and take this time to talk, remember what the body and the blood of Jesus has done for us. Pray with one another. If you have kids in here that aren't believers, that aren't taking it, pray for them. You pray for them out loud that they would surrender to Jesus. And pray silently. If you're not here with, with family or with your kids or just with your spouse, you can pray silently, you can pray together praising God for the gift of eternal life. And, and then I'll lead us in taking communion together as a sign of that unity to be of one mind. So we'll take that together. I'll lead us in that. But take a few moments, pray, and thank God for what he's done.